the PLA is not the one making decision of whether China is going to be Taiwan. It, it will be a political decision made by Xi Jinping. The PLA needs to provide the answer of can we do it or not, right? And they do not want to go to Xi and be like, no, no, Chairman Xi, we, we can't do this, right? Russia-China relations and their implications for, well, everything. To discuss, today I have Bonnie Lin, director of the China Power Project at CSIS. She previously spent nearly a decade at RAND. Bonnie, welcome to China Talk. Always great to have another uh, titan of the China podcasting world on the show as well. Everyone should check out Bonnie's China Power podcast. It is really great. She, what did he know and when did he know it? That's a really, really good question. And I'm not sure I definitely know the answer, but based off of uh, my conversations with Chinese interlocutors, both um, Chinese academics, but also some of the uh, Chinese officials that we've interacted with, I don't get a sense that China really had, you know, the full picture of Russia, what Russia intended uh, for Ukraine. So a couple of data points, right? So what they told me when is that when uh, in, you know, mid-February, when China was uh, was observing what was happening uh, in Russia, uh, sorry, in Ukraine and talking with their Russian counterparts in Beijing, Many of them were hearing from their Russian counterparts in Beijing that they didn't think that Putin was about to uh, invade Ukraine. Or if, or if Putin did, it was not the large-scale invasion that we're currently seeing now. It would be at most a limited operation just focused on eastern Ukraine. Um, other data points, for example, in terms of what China did was evacuation of its citizens, relatively very late evacuation, and the fact that in the early evacuation day, um, China encouraged the citizens to display the Chinese flag and then quickly decided that was not a good idea. All of these just seem to suggest that, you know, China didn't really quite know the full extent of Putin's ambitions. China may, likely had an indication, and Xi Jinping likely thought that there was a possibility, but um, they probably didn't know it would be as large and as as um, widespread and as beyond eastern Ukraine as we're, as what we're seeing right now. You know, Bonnie, what was so interesting in those early days, you saw stories in Western media of Biden administration officials telling uh, officials in Beijing, look, we have all the goods on Russia. We know exactly what's going to happen. Please listen to us. They're doing it. Do whatever they can to stop them. And I, in my sense is that, you know, the officials in Beijing trusted their Russian interlocutors, um, you know, many of whom were probably not in the like, you know, circle of four people of trust that Putin had um, and, you know, bought the line that Russia by and large was was saying in those in those in those weeks before the war that, in fact, it was not about to invade. Well, I mean, I, Jordan, I think that's a really good point, and I still see that today, right? I feel like one thing that's important when looking at how China assesses the situation in Ukraine is that China is probably likely to give Russia more credit and view whatever Russia does more positively, and whatever fault the United States and West has uh, from China's perspective, it will be magnified from their end. So in many ways, like what we saw very early on in the Ukraine crisis was despite the fact that we were sharing really good intelligence with with China, China was completely discounting it. China was viewing that as U.S. attempt to uh, basically um, divide and drive a wedge between China and Russia. Which is not wrong, but <laughs> um, uh, but but yeah, did not did not clearly resonate in the way that um, uh, uh, that they might have hoped down at Langley. 
Yeah. yeah and I, I, what I would add to that is that um, from, I mean, from China's perspective, hopefully what they learned from that is that the United States has relatively good uh, information and ability to be able to tell when a country is set on invading one of its neighbors. So when China looks to Taiwan, hopefully one lesson learned that China will have is, well, maybe the United States might be able to tell if we're really preparing for innovation. And hopefully that adds a little bit of deterrence as China thinks yeah. about Taiwan or use of military force and its periphery. It's it's interesting thinking about that, that sort of implication, though, because I'm not entirely sold that that's the takeaway. I mean, clearly, look, America has these really fancy satellites and they can see all the planes and tanks being put on the front and whatever. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is in 2012, 2013, the, the, the Chinese government, which uh, had an incredible, incredibly successful purging of American intelligence assets in in Chinese in the Chinese leadership. And, and you've seen stories um, by Peter Martin and others of late talking about the Biden administration's frustration in in not necessarily having, um, you know, a, a, a real pulse or high level access or those sorts of like sensitive sources um, that um, could really help inform uh, what at the end of the day are. Our, our, our political decisions. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, they have the troops on the border. But right before then, everyone was convinced, oh, they're just doing some big exercise to like help their negotiating position. And, you know, the difference with Putin, with the Putin administration is like, a lot of people don't like him. And a lot of people were not necessarily bought into doing this war, um, which would which would make it much easier for um, for intelligence officials around the world to find folks to give them the goods and tell them exactly what they thought was happening, because those people were trying to help the West stop this war from happening in the first place. Now, the um, I, I, I think sort of drawing that line to that scenario um, to, um, all the way back to um, to sort of whether a similar dynamic would happen in the case of a of a of a confrontation between the mainland and in Taiwan is uh, has has a number of logical leaps. I'm not necessarily um, completely sold on. Yeah, and what I said is uh, that was what I the takeaway that I hope China takes. I didn't say that was a takeaway that I think necessarily China is taking. But I guess a couple of things: if um, China is closely observing what's happening in Ukraine, it should see that um, the Russian invasion had ca- has caused. Um, domestic pushback within Russia, right? So one thing that we will need to see China do is really prepare its population for a Taiwan invasion. Right now, um, I'm not exactly sure if the Chinese population is ready for an invasion. I think rhetorically, they're ready, potentially, based off of, you know, the censorship that we're seeing. But um, one area that we might see China do is shift a lot more of its... um, legitimacy for potentially economic development to nationalism and really, really messaging at home that um, sustained economic costs for reunification with Taiwan is needed. We haven't seen really that messaging yet. We've seen the messaging about why unification with Taiwan is important and how that's in China's interest, but we haven't seen the end as the public, you should be willing to take some economic costs. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Every once in a while, she says something around Trujillo Dian on on protracted <laughs> struggle, right? But it's but it's but it's and I think all politicians, you know, they want to lower expectations a little bit. And you know, you're seeing Biden do this right now, being like, "Look, this is Putin's this is Putin's inflation, this is Putin's tax," and you know, you don't want to have people's hopes too high. So when there are struggles, they don't just throw it back on you. But uh, you're right, Bonnie. I think I think there hasn't there like getting people really 
willing to endure the type of sacrifices that the that the Russian people are currently having to do based on sort of elite um, elite policy decision making is not something that um, I've I've seen at all in the cards. It's more like it's more it's more on the lines of like, you know, one of another points that you uh, put in your um, uh, in your in your in your testimony to Congress of like self-reliance is really important and we have to work really hard and invest in this, not necessarily that like you know, we're going to have we're going to have 40 percent inflation tomorrow. And, and, and I would add, like, you know, I, I think you have a really good point that there are potential countermeasures and ways that China could try to even if China believed that U.S. could have good intelligence on some of its indicators and warnings prior to invasion, there are ways that China could try to um, make it more difficult for the United States. Right. Uh, one way could be uh, sort of doing what Russia did, which is have a large military exercise and make it unclear whether it's a military exercise or it's actually the precursors to invasion. So if China did, for example, multiple military exercises and start having a pattern of a lot of large-scale exercises, it could become difficult at some point for the United States and Taiwan to figure out, is this another major military exercise or is this actually a preparation for invasion? But if China was to do that, that would not, that would be a a relatively costly way to try to hack its invasion by having multiple large military exercises. Another way could be um, trying to just move a lot faster, right? So even if there are indicators and warnings for China's preparation, um, there is still the geographic distance and the need for the U.S. to be able to project our forces there. So one thing that China could do is try to move a lot, try to move a lot faster on Taiwan and maybe bring more assets to bear in the early phases of a Taiwan conflict. Yeah. So so since we're since so since we're on the military story, Bonnie, um, what is your take on to what extent Russian military struggles should cause both the PLA as well as, you know, PLA watchers around the world to update their priors on the, um, you know, combat effectiveness of the of the Chinese force? My hope is the PLA. <laughs> no, my hope is the PLA does watch it and introduce some doubt in their um, in their assessment of their own capabilities. Also, some doubt in terms of what um, uh, in terms of what they might assess to be Taiwan's ability to resist. But I I don't know if that is exactly what is happening. Um, what I do see in the and granted that what we're seeing in terms of the Chinese very publications early, yeah. are only, it's very early, but it's also potentially censored, um, is that there's a lot of lessons that the PLA are, is learning from Ukraine. And what I worry is that the PLA sees this as, okay, maybe, you know, this can show that we're weak in certain areas, but now we're going to address these weaknesses. Or in areas that we're more uncertain, we're going to double down in investment, double down in training and double down exercises and make more certain that we could do this if called upon to do it. Because as you understand, um, the PLA is not the one making decision of whether China's going to be Taiwan. It, it will be a political decision made by Xi Jinping. The PLA needs to provide the answer of can we do it or not, right? And they do not want to go to Xi and be like, no, no, uh, no, Chairman Xi, we, we can't do this, right? So they will uh, try to address all these efficiencies. The question is also on Xi's part, Given what she is seeing in terms of um, Russian military capabilities, does he still have the confidence um, that the PLA is as capable as they tell him it is, right? Because it did seem like Putin thought his military was that capable. Yeah. And what we're hearing from that, 
Taiwanese, some of the Taiwanese assessment is a lot of the same problems that plagued the Russian military, as well as the flow of information from the Russian military to Putin. Um, we could probably see those problems also within the uh, the Chinese system. Yeah, totally. Um, and, you know, you wonder to what extent, because at the end of the day, that's something that like she needs to personally internalize. Right. It's not something that like the system can solve, um, right. because when you when you have one person who's in power for this long, this is what happens. There's no way to kind of get around it in any in any structural way. I do want to stay on the um, uh, on the sort of updating military priors thing, because because, you know, the, the Chinese armed forces has a history of of watching wars abroad and trying to trying to um, uh, sort of take lessons and, and update. You saw this post desert storm. You saw this after the second, you know, the first and second Taiwan Strait crises. Um, there, there is like clear, um, you know, plenty of plenty, plenty of books which have uh, sort of documented this, um, uh, this trend. So um, it'll be really interesting because I because I think you're right, Bonnie, we're, we're probably not going to see this for the, um, uh, you know, f uh, if years from now when you saw it, when you see sort of like different acquisition strategies and new strategy documents. But um, uh, the extent to which that they see the, the, the parallels are, are, are going to be really interesting to follow. Of course, you know, an amphibious invasion is very different than a land invasion of like an absolutely enormous country. So there are um, there are there 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 are limits to the um, uh, to the um, uh, to, to the parallels that can be drawn. Yeah, it, and so some of the ways in which it's really different isn't just um, uh, isn't just a, the difference between a land invasion versus an amphibious invasion. It's also the way in which China has traditionally planned its uh, a Taiwan invasion, which is to occur very rapidly, hopefully in a matter of weeks, right? That would uh, and with very little indicator or more indication of warnings beforehand. That's not how the Russian invasion occurred, right? The Russian invasion took a really long time to, uh, it, I mean, start off with military exercise, right? And those troops were amassed out, um, outside of Ukraine for, what, months before Russia actually invaded, which actually created a significant time for the West to be unified and develop its sanctions. So what, I, what I'm closely following and, and tracking to see is, you know, if there is Chinese assessment that the strength of the sanctions, as well as how unified the West was, was contributed in any way by the amount of lead time they had to debate this. Well, if they had, you know, only what a week to react or just a couple of days to react, would that be the same set of sanctions? Would it? And did, and are there Chinese assessments that, as events have accelerated and escalated in Ukraine, is there more Western unity, or have we seen, from the Chinese perspective, you know, less unity, more debate in the in the West on what yeah. to do against yeah. Ukraine, or sorry, yeah, against mean, Russia and Ukraine? At least from my perspective, I think the answer is a clear yes. And I would be shocked if you weren't seeing, you know, the the um, this this sort of new U24 or whatever it is um, also having sort of sidebar discussions on like, look, what would be our deterrence package in a in a, in, in, in a Chinese scenario? And, you know, one would hope that this would um, uh, this would cause uh, Beijing to, to, to think twice about just how painful um, this could be, um, though, you know. Decoupling with Russia is something that the West, you know, the world has shown or the, the liberal democratic world has shown it's been able to pull off with 
okay, maybe like half a percent of hit to GDP growth and like 2% inflation. And, um, and uh, you know, I guess Gucci can sell, you know, there, there are sort of like spe- a few firms that are particularly more hit than others. But um, doing the same thing in the Chinese context is, you know, double digit uh immediate double digit inflation shortages um uh and and just real and like deep disruptions to everyday life around the world far beyond having to pay more um to pay more when you fill up at the pump which i think is um is something that uh policymakers both in beijing and around the world recognize yeah and that's something probably beijing is trying to bank on right Yep. The fact that countries are so much more dependent and interlinked with China will deter them from uh, either participating in the sanctions or at least modulate what they're willing to uh, suffer with respect to sanctions on China. Yeah. And you, and you point out in this um, in this testimony, Bonnie, that like the flip side of developing self-reliance for the Chinese government is also increasing global reliance on it. And uh, oftentimes it doesn't that that sort of piece of the puzzle isn't quite reported, uh, doesn't get as much uh, as much uh, play in, in in mainstream media. But it's in all the speeches, uh, it, not in all the speeches. It's in most of the speeches. And it, it is a sort of su- subtle undercurrent to um, um, to all of this decoupling uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Hey, folks, Jordan here. Just wanted to let you know that I've also been running a newsletter for four plus years. It's called. China Talk. You can find it at chinatalk.substack.com. If you listen to this show, I think you'll like it. chinatalk.substack.com. If you'd be interested in supporting the show and also are sick of hearing me interrupt your show to ask to support the show, please consider supporting China Talk via Substack or Patreon. patreon.com slash chinatalk or chinatalk.substack.com. Would very much appreciate your support. For your troubles, you'll get an ad-free feed. Thank you so much. So let's bring us back closer to the present. Um, I, I laid out. I, I, I sent you a piece that I wrote with uh, with some colleagues at Rhodium a few days ago, where we laid out like the like the three paths for China when it comes to its Russia policy going forward. Um, the one which is probably most likely is this sort of muddle through scenario where um, you see you see kind of current trend lines continuing. The Chinese government doesn't start sending tanks over, but also doesn't start um, you know really aggressively criticizing the. Um, uh, uh, you know, the Russian government for its actions in Ukraine. Um, but there are, you know, outside chances that we can have uh, Beijing's policy break either aggressively in favor or aggressively opposed to to Russia. So I'm curious, Bonnie, what it, what do you think it would take for um, Beijing to, um, to 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 really change its tune um, and maybe pick one and we'll talk about sort of like the indicators and implications um, and then uh, and then go on to the other. Sure. Just uh, for context, for those who don't have uh, Jordan's awesome paper right in front of you, the three options are rebalance toward the U.S.-EU position, muddle through with deliberate blinders, and double down on support for Moscow. Uh, So I think Beijing is actually, the current Beijing's position is somewhere between the, the last two. So it's somewhere between muddling through and doubling down on support for Moscow. So why I say it's between both is I, um, uh, so I view Beijing as trying to portray itself as taking a neutral path, mm-hmm. but it is basically in, in the most important aspects of their uh, uh, 
policy or their activities towards Ukraine, it is very clearly tilted toward Moscow. So that's why it's somewhere between your two first, uh, your top two options. If you were sitting in Jonan High, like, would that be what you would be telling Xi to do? I mean, is the idea of a collapsing Russian state and sort of this alliance kind of falling apart really, um, really all that scary? Um, I think it would be from China's perspective. Uh, what we're hearing from the Chinese interlocutors is what uh, if you, uh, is that Russia has some of the longest borders with China. Historically, um, China's had to worry about the defense all across those borders. And if China has to worry about that again, that would take a that would require quite a bit of investment and would take away from what China views as its actual main threat, which is what they view um, as the United States, given what they view as a much more aggressive U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, as well as us working with our allies and partners from their perspective to expand militarily and potentially uh, um, form blocks to counter China. So from their perspective, they really do need either Russia as a friend, but preferably Russia that is not only a friend, but also in some ways strong and strategically able to push back and help them push back against the United States, not only in the Indo-Pacific, but also potentially elsewhere globally. Yeah, it's funny that that's the line is like we're worried about arrestive borders. It's like, man. The Russian army, that would be light work for you guys at this point. I mean, if we can't, if you can't figure that out, I would, I would, I wouldn't, um, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be thinking about, uh, you know, messing with Taiwan anytime soon. Um, well, uh, so I, I don't mean to say that their worries are only about the borders, but it's also, it's also about, um, the concern it's would be quite similar to how to think about North Korea, right? Yeah. With North Korea is their worry that, uh, with a North Korea collapse, given North Korea's possession of both nuclear weapons and advanced capabilities, what would that type of instability and unrest mean for uh, right next to China? And imagine that being Russia. That's just so many times worse given Russian size and Russia's military capabilities. Yeah. I mean, it happened in the 90s, right? Um, and I don't, I don't like, aside from like, like communism being somewhat delegitimized, um, I, I don't, did, 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 did sort of, the Russian Federation's foibles and challenges over the course of the 90s have a major impact on China. I mean, maybe like I can't imagine the oil would stop flowing regardless of what um, uh, um, uh, what happened to Russia domestically. I mean, maybe maybe it's a sort of just like like we just don't want to see autocrats fall type thing. Um. Uh, as I well? think it's a little bit different, right? Like what happened to the disintegration of the Soviet Union was a, clearly a domestic issue, right? Yeah. But if, for example, um, uh, China decides for your, for your first path to work with the West, the United States, and that somehow contributes to Russia's collapse, I think from Russia's perspective or Moscow's perspective, it wouldn't view China as, you know, a neutral country. It could significantly increase antagonism between the two neighbors. So, so. There's a lot of questions of given the fact that she and Putin have this strengthened relationship from the February 4th statement. And if Putin did ask for Chinese support and China said no, I think that would be viewed as much more than, you know, just Russia, the Soviet Union collapsing on something. It would be our friend was not there to help us. And that would build up more resentment and antagonism. And China could have a not friendly Russia by its border. Sure. That's a good point. Um, though not like not. <laughs> Not like that, that that state would be in, in any position to cause cause too much mischief. Um, coming back to the like 
I guess like the deep, like the, like the real long shot here, um, which is um, Beijing changing its tune. I mean, is it, I don't think, I don't even think it's chemical weapons. Um, I feel like it might have to be um, uh, a sort of a, a nuclear weapons, which is something that would um, uh, change the dynamic. I'm curious, I'm curious, Bonnie, if you have any, um, uh, any thoughts on what, if any sort of tripwires would really, um, uh, really cause she uh, to, to think, because I mean, you know, we, we have seen like a shift on North Korea policy over time, right? It's not like uh, it's not like Beijing has sort of always been completely fine with um, just craziness uh, coming out of uh, coming out of Pyongyang. Um, and maybe maybe there is a certain point where they just get fed up with this and, 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 and think that there's um, uh, that, that a new strategy needs to be taken. Yeah. Um, and I would go back. So in terms of Beijing thread lines, I think, you know, if you had asked me this question two or three weeks ago, I probably would have been a little bit more optimistic in terms of maybe it was the chemical weapons that would be the red line. But now as I'm seeing Beijing double down on um, its relationship with Russia again and again, including the recent Wang Yi uh, statement from his meeting with Lavrov, it seems like uh, China is quite set on this. So when I think about what are scenarios in which China may actually shift its position, I think you have to um, put on sort of your Xi Jinping hat and think about it from Beijing's perspective. And it might not just be how how Russia acts. It might be how Russia acts and how the West responds. So, for example, in the case of uh, Putin uses a nuclear weapon, right? How does the West respond? If we go nuke Putin, I think China can make the case, well, I don't know. Yes, he did start it, but... <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the case they're making in the Ukraine conflict, right? Yeah. Like, yes, Putin started, but look at the Russian. Yeah, the, look at, the look at these character. freaking NATO jerks. They're contributing to the war. Right, exactly. Um, so so I think the, the only way that, you know, Beijing could really see a break in this narrative of where they always view the Russia or they give Russia some credit or some, you know, more slack and don't really give the U.S. or West any slack at all would be if Russia makes a tremendous and horrific move and the United States and NATO basically don't retaliate in kind. And then Beijing's like, oh, well, what Russia did was really bad and what yeah. the West and NATO did was not. And I, I just don't see us doing that, right? Well, like that, that yeah, would I mean, have significant implications on, on our own deterrence and how we think about how to respond to Russia. Yeah, I, I was, I was going to, so I haven't had a guest to bring this up too but this is the sort of horror um moment that's in my head is like if you're biden and like a tactical nuclear weapon goes off on the outskirts of a ukrainian city like what the fuck do you do i mean it's 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 uh i don't know what's the what's the what rand paper should i read um that's a good question i don't know (laughs) I haven't actually um, followed any of the recent RAND papers on this. And as you know, uh, it probably takes a while for RAND publications to come out. So you'll probably see the uh, deep research uh, motivating the RAND paper uh, next year on this issue. (laughs) So speaking of of RAND papers, I just wanted to like allude to uh, something I found deep in your archives, Bonnie. You wrote this. I think the first thing you wrote after your PhD thesis was this. Lessons from blunders in uh, military blunders in history, um, which like I, I'm a real sucker for historical uh, sort of policy related work, which goes like a little past Munich um, and like 
find some deep, relatively deep cuts of um, of 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 world and military history. Um, there was a really fun. So so we had um uh, we had some good stuff in the there. We had you know China Vietnam nineteen seventy nine. We had the Spanish American War, which like never gets written about. Um, but um uh, th- there was a really great bit in there um where you guys kind of bucketed all of the blunders that you know that that happened when starting wars and a few of them which i liked the most um which i just wanted to highlight were excessive reliance on intuition sorry napoleon um unwarranted confidence from egotism hubris and uh arrogance which was like a hirohito move you guys assigned and then mental disorder megalomania slash paranoia um which uh hitler gets uh credit for for invading uh invading the soviet union so i'll leave that one in the uh i'll leave that one in the show notes if people want to people want to dive in so um so bonnie i wanted to close um a little bit with kind of meditation meditating on the role of ffrdc's in the policy discussion and what they kind of can and can't do relative to um, your new role working at a, at a sort of brand name Massachusetts Avenue think tank. So what do you, um, what, what are your, what are your kind of reflections on, on the strengths and the limits of, um, you know, the RANs and the IDAs of the world? You know, I went to RAND right after my graduate school, and there could not have been a better place for me to really learn about the PLA and work with some of the world leading PLA experts, as well as operational military experts and analysts. So RAND, given the fact that we do so much work for the Department of Defense and the fact that I I, I don't know the actual percentage, but I would imagine over 50 percent of the RAND DC office has a security clearance. That working in such a world where um, we have so much access, but also uh, direct connection to the DOD is just such a great way to be able to plug into the defense community and also be able to do very rigorous year-long works or sometimes multi-year projects where you really get to dive deep onto an issue, a topic, and you're working in very, in large teams. So, so teams could be as small as, you know, two or three, but it could also be as big as 15, 20 people. And when you have big teams that big, you really are looking at a problem from an interdisciplinary approach. So um, I highly recommend RAND for folks who are really thinking about understanding um, the PLA and understanding um, China from the military perspective. Weaknesses. Well, so the weaknesses, if you're doing a year-long project, you're not going to be able to publish it, you know like tomorrow right so you can't you're not responding to the news cycle right you're responding to much larger deep questions that require that year-long research so so sort of think tank were contrasted contrasted with um you know the stuff the stuff folks see out of uh ffrdc's what do you think um uh um what do you think they bring and what do you think the challenges um that think tanks have you know given that the sort of teams and budgets tend to be uh tend to be a, f- a few orders of magnitude smaller than the uh than the resources that the rands of the world have to work with mm-hmm. sure so what i really love about csis is how much we're really out in front of issues and in some ways as one of my colleagues told me when i first joined in some ways we're trying to comment and shape some of the discussions on key topics whether that's china russia or other uh, china topics so, um, and at CSIS, we're incredibly nimble, right? So say if we wanted to put up on a panel um, uh, the next day, what the only limits are if we can find the panelists 
as well as if we could find appropriate time on our calendars, right? It's incredibly fast. And the real benefit of being at CSIS is we don't have anyone telling us what we can or cannot say. There's no, there's very limited review process of our work. It's a, the trust that, you know, it's our name uh, if we want to publish it. So we, since it's our name and we're taking credit, we're also taking the blame. So it's not, so it's a, it's a, in many ways, a confidence in a vote of confidence in your ability to maintain your own brand. So the difference then with Thran is because so much of our work is for DOD, right? Um, there is in some ways, a, we would need to check with our sponsors on whether we can share information as we're working on it. And um, sometimes the topics are too sensitive, right? Other times, you know, we're doing classified work, so we can't share it publicly. So part of working in the FFRDC is a recognition that you're contributing to this longer term analysis which is, and you're not out there necessarily shaping the news cycle. You're not aiming for, you know, to be the next um, top op-ed that someone reads. Yeah. So I wanted to close on one more thing, Bonnie. Um, you, you, you've alluded to um, the fact that you spend a fair amount of time kind of chatting with, with mainland scholars. Um, I'm curious if you had a, you know, a reading list of your top five folks um, or any advice you would have for me, desperate to bring uh, sort of mainland-based uh, folks onto China Talk, but have like struck it out time after time. I wonder if there's any sort of like secret button or phrase um, you think I should include in my um, in my uh, interview request emails going forward that might uh, increase my chances. Oh, I, I don't know if I have any secret sauce because I haven't um, since I've um, uh, taken over from Ch for China Power. I haven't had yet to feature a uh, Chinese uh, guest on my podcast, but I will be featuring one uh, next two or three weeks from now. Uh, Tong Zhao uh, from uh, Carnegie, and my oh, uh, oh he's the yeah. he's the he's literally the I, I'm I'm gonna run a show with him next week. He's like literally, oh, perfect. The, only, yeah, he's exactly. literally the only person who's responded to my email. <laughs> oh my god, Tong Zhao, like two hundred points to you. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so um, I think it's, um, uh, and I also do think it is more difficult for our Chinese counterparts to be able to speak as freely um, nowadays than before. So uh, I guess I would go with the folks who are already speaking publicly because they are either more willing to take a risk or they know where the boundaries are and um, they're willing to, uh, to talk despite that. Sure. Um, and just uh, maybe close with 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 three folks who you think uh, uh, people should um, um, follow their you know Weibo's or uh, sort of publication histories. Uh, I I'm actually inclined to not mention okay. names just because right. like you know I I don't know if it's good to be mentioned or bad to be mentioned. It's just such a, yeah. a difficult political environment now. That's <laughs> yeah, really tricky. Um, I just want to make another pitch for everyone out there. Someone with better Chinese than me, please start the Chinese language China talk. Um, this should be happening. And my kind of thought is that maybe just doing shows in, in Chinese might be um, uh, might be a little more comfortable for folks. Maybe not. Maybe it's actually even worse. Who knows? Bonnie, I close every show with a song. Um, do you have any like PLA adjacent songs or just any song that can like somewhat be related to this Show. I don't know if there's like a China Russia song or you're you're you seem oh. incredibly shocked. Uh, if you don't want to pick a song, I can just I can just I can just find something. But um, uh, um as in like you're gonna sing it or, or you want? Oh me my to god! Sing no, 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 no! I, I um uh, I I I sort of like fade. I like fade us out. 
it, it, I like rip a song from from YouTube and then just like put it as outro. Oh, it's like outro okay. music. Huh? Chinese songs. What song that um? I am a little interested. In, I actually don't even know the name of the song. Is um? Uh, it's a TV series I really liked recently because I'm all about um, Chinese kung fu uh, TV series, some shock TV series. Okay. And this one featured a um, his love story between two men. And of course, that got, you know, that, that afterwards it was not very well received. So I think you featured that theme song. Bonnie Lynn, thank you so much for being a part of China. Thank you very much for having me, Jordan.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I am excited to announce the Adweek Podcast Network, the first ever podcast network created for brand enthusiasts and anyone curious about the latest trends in marketing, advertising, technology, and culture. Adweek has partnered with leading industry voices to bring you analysis of trends, pressing challenges, and to share top-tier insights to help you level up your career, creativity, and strategy. Starting April 12th, you will get to hear brand new shows like Young Influentials, The Speed of Culture, Adweek Presents, and some of your favorites like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, CMO Moves, and Season 2 of Metaverse Marketing. We are also happy to be the new home for amazing shows like Brave Commerce, The Great Fail, and To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Learn more by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. That's adweek.com slash podcasts. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-cast. 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 recommends.